Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of Oxford Baptist Church with our pastor, Andy Brown. We pray you'll be blessed as you apply these truths to your life. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we are so grateful as we just sang that you have sought us and bought us by the precious blood of Christ alone. Father, we need you. Every moment, every hour. Let us be aware, not only of our great need, how sufficient you are to cover all of our needs. And let us, Lord, as we prepare to break your bread, the bread of your word, be reminded today in a fresh way that you have given us all that we need by giving us your Son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, we take this solemn occasion of preaching where, Lord, it's not just a man standing behind a podium, but it's, Lord, listeners of hearts actively engaging in worship. And that's what we seek to do now. In the power of Your Spirit, in the name of the Son, to the glory of You, our Father. In whose name we pray. Amen. At the center of Christianity stands a cross. At the center of our faith, there's a cross. But it's not just any cross. It's the cross of Christ. And from that cross, Christ has accomplished salvation for us. That means... That Christ is the only way for us to be made right with God. And so since He has come and accomplished salvation from the cross, we who were once slaves to sin are now sons of God. We were once slaves, but through His blood He has redeemed us, ransomed us, and now we're no longer slaves. We are sons and daughters of God. And let's just say this this morning, of all the teaching of Scripture, of everything that this Bible contains, we'd better get the cross right. Because if we miss the cross, we miss everything. Paul said to the Corinthians, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. If you were to summarize my preaching, it would be nothing more than Christ and Him crucified. And so today, We get to highlight the cross of all the teaching in Scripture. We better make sure that we get the cross right. Because the cross is the centerpiece of our salvation. Now that begs a question. What on earth is the teaching of the cross? And can we summarize the teaching of the cross in one passage in a few minutes? Well... We're in our second week of the study of the doctrine that sealed the protest from the Roman Church. The Protestant Reformation this year, of course, is October 2017. And October 31st of 1517, that's when an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis on the Wittenberg Church in Germany. Of course, he protested the, uh, uh, the Roman Catholic Church. And so this is the 500th anniversary of that event. So at Oxford, we're celebrating the 500th anniversary by looking at those doctrines 
that sealed the Protestant Reformation, these five truths known as the five solas or the five alones. And these five truths, they helped us correctly articulate the gospel of grace. That's what we're doing. We're not looking at five solas, five doctrines. We're looking at this whole big picture of the doctrine of grace. And so last week, I gave you a sentence that hopefully I'm going to give you every week so that we can learn this and write it on the tablets of our hearts by the Spirit, memorize it, to help us understand the gospel of grace. So here's the sentence again. Let's go over it. Salvation, that is, what we mean by salvation is our only hope in life and death. That's what we mean by salvation. Salvation, according to Scripture, is through Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, to God's glory alone. So you hear the alones there. That's the solas. That's the onlys that we are looking at. So from that sentence, I hope that you can see the movements of the gospel of grace. It's grounded in Scripture alone, affected through Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, for God's glory alone. So today, you and I have this wonderful privilege of focusing on the second sola. That is, we're going to look at Christ alone. So here's what I mean when I say Christ alone. And here's what I want us to learn when we say Christ alone. Christ alone means Jesus is the unique Son of the Father, and He has accomplished everything necessary for our salvation. So that's the whole sermon in a sentence. Christ alone has accomplished everything necessary for our salvation. So a key scripture that we could say that maybe is a great summary of that. This is not our scripture for this morning. But a key scripture would be something like Colossians 1.13. Let me read it for you. He, that is the Father, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominion or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. That's Jesus. And I love Paul. It's like when he's writing to the Colossians. He, I can see him saying at the end of that sentence, I wish I could describe Him to you. Because that's exactly who Jesus is. He is all of these things. And it's even greater than that for us. And though we're, we're not just passively looking at this Jesus and, and adoring Him in our worship as if He's from some distance. We read a passage like Colossians chapter 1 and where we're going to read today. And here's what we need to understand. Listen closely. All of those truths are ours because of Christ. It's not just we're just describing Jesus. We're in Him if we have faith in Him. And so all of those truths are not just speaking about Him out yonder, though it is, we are in Him. And so all of those truths that describe Him, you know what? They are ours. And let me just say this. If that is true, 
if all of who He is is ours. And we need these truths. Not just some on occasion, maybe on a Sunday or on a Wednesday or when we stump our toe or whatever the case may be. We're having a bad day. We need something. We don't just need these truths on occasions. We need them every hour. And sometimes we need them moment by moment, minute by minute. And sometimes, if we're all honest today, there's certain occasions in our life that pull us away from these truths. We need to be reminded of it because we are looking at things that are unseen. And yeah, we're feeling it in our heart. We're longing for the day when, the, when we do see these things. But right now we live by faith and not by sight. We live by what we hear and not even by what we feel. And so there's sometimes, there's some occasions where if we're all honest with one another, the waves of this present life, they, they batter against our hope. And what they're doing is they're attempting to take our hope and let it be washed out to sea and leave us on the shore hopeless. And so how then do we respond to such a doctrine like the doctrine of Christ alone? And that's what I want to answer today. What does the doctrine of Christ alone have anything to do with us? So I want you to take your Bibles with me, please, and find an epistle sort of towards the end of your Bible. Turn to 1 Peter. So last week, if you remember where we were, we were looking at uh, Scripture alone. And I just had a, an idea that I wanted to throw at you. And so you, as you're coming every week and listening to these online and reading the notes online, as we're engaging together with Scripture, I want to do something for you because we are committed at Oxford. I'm committed as your pastor to the authority of Scripture. So what I want to do is I don't want to just present five truths And I could take these truths from anywhere in the Bible. I don't want you to think that I'm making the Bible say something. I want us to see together that these truths arise from the text. And so that began me thinking. Last week we looked at the authority of Scripture from 2 Peter. And that prompted this question in my mind. And that is this. Can we see the five solas of the Reformation from the writings of Peter? And I think that we can so what I'm committed to you from this point forward, and this is something that just developed just on Monday of this past week for me, is as we're looking at these next three weeks together, we're going to be in Peter. We're going to be in First or Second Peter and seeing these truths rise out of the text so that we'll be ensured that we're not reading the truths into the text. I want to show you from the writings of Peter that these truths rise from the text. So to show you Christ alone so that we can learn Christ alone, I want us to look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. But, just in case you'll hold me accountable here so that I'm not making the Bible say something that it doesn't say, we need to know the context before we get to 1 Peter chapter 3. So, Peter, if you turn to chapter 1, he's writing to a group of Christians who are scattered for a particular reason. And the particular reason is that they're being persecuted for the cause of Christ. Because they say Jesus is Lord and not Caesar, they've been scattered to the four winds of the Roman Empire. So listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 12. Listen to what he says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, 
kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though for now, a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, that which is more precious than gold and that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now listen to what he says here. Though you've not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith salvation of your souls. And then he says this. Look at what he says next. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what persons or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. He's talking about the Old Testament. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. You see what Peter's doing in the very beginning of the book? Peter's writing to these believers. They're persecuted. He is grounding their hope, listen carefully, in the finished work of the cross. He is grounding their hope in the finished work of the cross. Why is that? Well, because that's the place that our hope is. We just sang about it earlier in the service. Edward Mote taught us back in 1843, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So we dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And then listen to what Edward Mote says next, because he's been reading Peter. When darkness veils his lovely face. The storms of this life are battering up against your hope. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Sing this part with me. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. You sing beautifully. I hope you know that. It's always a joy for me sitting on this front row to hear the congregation sing. And that's our faith. That's who we are. Because it's in Christ alone that we are able to stand. It's in Christ. It's on Christ. Everything is Christ. And that leads us to our text this morning. Join with me in reading the Word of God in 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning now in verse 18. Listen to the Bible. Hear the Word of God. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared 
in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to Him. What does suffering for the cause of Christ have to do with the doctrine of Christ alone? What does suffering have to do with Christ alone? And here's what I think it has to do with Christ alone. Christ, who came and died, calls us to follow Him. He who came and died calls us to come and die so that by our dying, we may live. Now think about that in your mind. Mull that over for just a moment. That sort of sounds strange, doesn't it? We can know what living is by our dying. Doesn't that sound strange? Even though it sounds strange, this is the Gospel. This is the thrust of the Gospel. At the center of Christianity is what? It's a cross. A cruel cross. The cross of Christ. Now that's strange to me. Some have called it, as I think it was Paul who may have used such language, the scandal of the cross. Isn't that strange? That God shows us Himself as God our Savior through a cross. He doesn't come as a rich and powerful man. He's not a political man. He's not even really a, a poor man. Instead, what does He do? He reveals Himself as God through a cross. He doesn't show Himself to us as, as God Almighty. You don't see Him moving mountains and casting lightning bolts or doing all of those things. Now, that's not to say that He doesn't do miracles. Of course He does miracles, but even His miracles, if you read closely, they're, they're almost unnoticed. They're in a, a little bitty place on the edge, on the outskirts of the Roman Empire. And that one little happening of three years, it's amazing how the cross works everything and has the final word, that, that one little place in the middle of nowhere, almost insignificant, has all of a sudden become the centerpiece of the entire world. It's almost unnoticed, this life. But He shows us what it is to be God by the way that He dies. Think with me for just a moment. Death is the epitome of our weakness. We had nothing to do with our arrival. You know, my mom and dad are here today. They didn't consult with me and say, hey, would you like to be here? That didn't happen. None of that happened. We were powerless. We had no freedom when we came to this earth. And then what happened? Then all of a sudden we're born into this world and we arrive in this world in which we also have no choice of something coming to us. You know what's going to happen? We're going to die. One out of one people die. I've not met anyone 150 years old. Neither of you. See, you can be religious all you want. You can try to do all the good that you want. And you know what is going to happen to you? You're going to die. You can come to church, you can give all the money you want, you're going to die. 
Death is the only thing that every one of us as humans have in common. And listen to me closely. It's that exact point of death that God chose to show us Himself. Remember this? Remember, look back to the road to Emmaus. We looked at this last week. They didn't recognize who Jesus was until after He'd already died. They didn't. Jesus on the cross? Who is that guy? Nobody knows. There was a soldier that got it right. Behold, the Son of God. You know, there was all these little people that... But no one really knew, not even his own followers, who he was until after he had died. He shows us who he is in his death. Christ alone has taken death. And think about this. He's turned it inside out. So now, because of Christ, death is not the end. Death is just the beginning. Christ, by conquering death, He shows Himself to be stronger than death. And in that, He secures our salvation. And this is the hope that Peter is speaking of. This is the hope that Peter is seeking to ground us. It's the hope of Christ alone. And so very quickly, what I want to do. Very quickly, I want to make a, a few observations from this text. So that our hope will be secured in the finished work of the Son. Number one, salvation in Christ, and they're all going to begin with salvation in Christ, so you can write that down in the first and then do the ditto marks if you want. Salvation in Christ means our hope is secure. Look what happens. Peter says you're, you're going to suffer, uh, you, you're probably going to do this, but don't think it's strange when suffering comes. We don't suffer like other people suffer. We who are in Christ suffer as Christians. And sometimes we suffer for Christ. But either way, regardless, the grounding of our suffering is Christ. What I mean by that is that the cross gives us this this new way to view all things, including these light and momentary afflictions that you and I may encounter. And that's what they are. Even cancer is a light and momentary affliction compared to the glories that are going to be revealed. Even our death. It's light and momentary. In light of the, of the reality of the glory that is more powerful than death that awaits us. You, you see what Christ has done? He gives us a, a new way of seeing the world. All of our struggles and trials, they're preparing us, the Bible says, for an eternal weight of glory. We now have this reality in Christ. We have died, the Bible says. And our lives are now hid with Christ. And so what does that mean? It means that our hope was secured by a hammer and three nails. Christ alone. You know, we're giving answers, as, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3, and, and I think it's verse 15 and 16. He says, you know, we're, we're suffering because we're giving an answer for those. We're giving a hope that's within us. It comes, uh, we're just being who we are. We're suffering for Christ because we're just simply who we are. And when these moments come, Peter says, don't think that that's strange. If you're suffering for Jesus, don't think it's strange. Instead, the opposite is true. We don't think it's strange. The world thinks us strange. Look at these people. Who would be willing to die for a fairy tale? Who would be willing to die for a myth? Who wants to stand up to Congress and say that this and that is right? And who would, Don't they know that their business is going to be ruined? Don't they know? And we have the words of Jesus echoing in our minds. What profit is a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? 
That's what we have echoing in our mind. Because Christ has taught us this. Remember what happened to the apostles as they were arrested for preaching the gospel? And this is Acts chapter 5. And, and have you ever read this and really just thought about this? Acts tells us that when they had called in the apostles, they, they beat them. And they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. And this is the verse that just, you should be like, what's going on? You know, now think about this. It's not just, I know that there's a lot between those verses. So they call them in, they, they beat them, then they let them go. And then look what happens next. Then they left the presence of the council. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer this honor for the name. And then what happened? Every day after that, In the temple and from house to house, they didn't cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. you see that? What kind of hope is this? It's a hope that anchors our souls to the eternal weight of God's glory. That's what kind of hope it is. Number two this morning. Salvation in Christ means that the wrath of God has been satisfied. Not only is our hope secure, but the reason that our hope is secure is because... The wrath of God has been satisfied. You and I, we will never understand the love of God displayed on the cross for us until we come to the point where we feel the crushing weight of our own sin. We will never understand the cross until we see the depth of our fall from His grace. That the wrath of God was on us. We were the objects of God's Listen carefully. We were the objects of God's hate. Not His affection, His hate. And even that type of language probably brushes against some of us. Because when we talk about the wrath of God today, that's not very popular. Just four years ago, back in 2013, a very prominent denomination decided not to include the song that we sang in our service today in Christ Alone. They decided not to include it in their hymnals. And the reason they didn't want to include it was because of the second verse. In Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God, and helpless babe. This gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones He came to save. Now listen to this part. This is the part that they had contention with. Till on that cross as Jesus died, look at this next word, the wrath of God was satisfied. Every sin on Him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. And so the, this certain prominent American denomination came up to the writers and they asked them, they said, would you change that one line to something like this? Till on the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. And the writers responded with a single word. No. So that certain denomination decided to leave it out of the hymnal. And you know what that means? It means that they removed that particular doctrine out of 10,000 congregations that are meeting this morning across America. You say, what's the big deal? Can't we say the love of God magnified instead of the wrath of God satisfied? What's the big deal? Well, it wouldn't be a big deal except for Scripture. Except for this. Because look at what verse 18 says. Christ suffered. Ooh. Suffered. That idea carries the idea that the 
something was poured out upon him. Remember what he's saying to James and John who want to sit at his right and left hand and he says, you're not able to drink the cup that I am. What's the cup that he's talking about? And he's praying in the garden, remove this cup from me. You know what that cup is? It's an Old Testament imagery of the wrath of God. And here's the beautiful aspect of Christ on the cross. The aspect is that Christ took the whole cup of the wrath of God and he drank it down to the dregs. So that there's no more wrath for us. Because Christ has suffered once for sin. Look at it, the rest of it. The righteous for the unrighteous. Now this whole idea of dismissing the wrath of God, it's not new. It began to get traction with a guy named Marcion. Now don't name your children Marcion. You can name your dog Marcion, that's fine, but just not your children, okay? Marcion. Irenaeus called him the father of all heretics. That's why you shouldn't name your kids Marcion. Or your daughter Marcion, for that matter. Anyway, Marcion was called the father of all heretics by Irenaeus. Marcion was the guy who first popularized the idea that the Bible really represents two different gods. There's the God of wrath in the Old Testament. We don't like that God. Then there's the God of love in the New Testament. Ah, we love that God. And this is where an early church guy by the name of Tertullian, listen to what he said about Marcion's ideas. He said, a better God has been discovered. One who is neither offended nor angry, nor inflicts punishment, who has no fire warming up in hell, no outer darkness wherein there is shuddering and gnashing of teeth. He is merely kind. Here's the problem with that God. It's not the God of the Bible. Here's the problem with that God. It's a God that man has erected in their own minds and is not the God that is revealed through Scripture. Such a picture of God doesn't equate for this fact. Christ died for sin, for unrighteousness, verse 18, so that He could bring us to God. See, you and I, we were separated from God and then Christ brought us near to Him. You know how Christ brought us near to Him? Through the blood of His cross. The next verses, those are those hard verses where it talked about Jesus going down and preaching in the, you know, to Noah and going into the proclaiming to the spirits in prison. By the way, we don't get to delve into that very deeply this morning. And it's not that I'm avoiding it. It's just that we just don't have time. Luther, who is one of, some of the father of the Reformation, he said that this is the most challenging passage in all of Scripture. So it's not like I'm trying to dodge it. I'm just wanting you to know that those next verses, those hard verses, you know what they're showing? They're showing that's a picture of the satisfying victory of God. This language here in verse 19 of descending into hell is the same thing that happens in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15 where Christ parades a victory over His enemies. So He's going down descending into hell, descending into death, parading His victory over death. He's marching through the streets of hell as a champion on His stallion saying, I have conquered, I have won, give me the keys. That's what He's doing. So how is Christ able to do this because the wrath of God, which is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, has been satisfied in Christ. So what does that mean? Here's what it means. It means that the wrath that was reserved for us, the hatred of God that was reserved for us, Christ 
took upon Himself. He became the object of the Father's displeasure. He who was one with the Father, He became in some way where Christ is praying, Psalm 22, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? He became the object of the Father's displeasure. He became the object of His own displeasure. Why is that? So that instead of us bearing the wrath of God, we now bear the love of God. But you can't bear the love of God until you have a sin bearer. You have to have someone bearing the weight of your sin upon Himself. I love the love of God, and that's a great truth. But before we can get to the love of God, we have to deal with why is Jesus so bloodied up on the cross. You know the reason? Because God takes serious our sin. And we know that because Christ was crucified for sin. Verse 18. Think with me. Why on earth did Jesus have to die a cruel death on the cross? He did it so that He could bear the wrath of God. And why did He do it? Don't miss this. He did it for us. If we dismiss the wrath of God, we have no answer for how cruel the cross is. But, if we embrace the cross, then we have a sin bearer. What does that mean? It means that we have the assurance that the holy God on whose majesty we had profaned, this holy God, His wrath, has been completely propitiated or has been completely satisfied. All of my sin. All of your sin. Not in part, but the whole. Is nailed to the cross. And guess what? You don't bear it anymore. I don't bear it anymore. So I don't have to worry about it. Because He has died once for sin. The righteous for the unrighteous. And since He died for sin, His death means, listen closely, it means the end of sin. That's number three. So the way to remove the stain of sin in the Bible is by the shedding of blood. This is how egregious sin is. Sin's not just something that we can sweep under the rug and look away from. We sin in our present state against a God who is eternal and holy. And only the shedding of blood can bring forgiveness. That's how egregious sin is. Only the shedding of blood can bring forgiveness. And this is exactly what God has done for us in the sending of the Son. Look at verse 18. Christ suffered for sin. Once for sin. Not many times, but once. You remember what John the Baptist said when he saw Christ coming to him for baptism? What did he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now that's strange, isn't it? Somebody comes up to you and says, Hey, Lammy. If somebody calls you a lamb, you're going to think, What are you talking about? You know, you don't want anybody calling you names like a cow. Some animals were okay being called bear. You know, the, we don't want to be called other names. But John looks at Christ and says, Behold the Lamb. Why did he call him a lamb? How does a lamb take away sin? He has to be spotless. And then he has to be slaughtered. Think about the extravagance of the cross. There's sin. 
Sin has brought about the wrath of God. The wrath has been satisfied. And how was it satisfied? Through sacrifice. Now whose wrath is it that needs to be satisfied? It's God's. Now who was it that brought the wrath of God because of sin? It was us. Now this is where it gets good. How is the wrath of God satisfied? Sacrifice. Who provided the sacrifice to appease His own sin? God. Why did He do that? For you. For me. This is why Paul writes to the Romans and he says, if God gave up His own Son for us, His only begotten Son, the unique Son of the Father, if He would give us His Son, what else is He going to give us? Paul says, if God would give us His Son, He's not going to withhold nothing from us. And that's the Gospel truth. God provides the sacrifice to atone. He covers our sin. We were incapable of doing it. Anything that we could do was unrighteousness. Even the best we could do was unrighteousness. So what did He do? Through His death, brought an end to sin. Look at what it says. It says that He might bring us to God. Do you see that in verse 18? So in other words, because of the work of Christ, we are, number four, we are right with God. Salvation in Christ means that we are right with God. So, He has restored our relationship to God. Christ has restored our relationship to God. And how's He done it? Through His death. That's how much it took to save you. That's how much it took to save me. When you sing the children's hymn, Jesus loves me, this I know. I hope that you see the bloody cross there. Because that's how you know God loves you. He demonstrated it. didn't just tell you. He demonstrated His love for you in that while you were still a sinner. You didn't have it all right. Everything wasn't right with you. You were wretched. Worms. Sinful. And God saw you in that pitiful position. Saw me in my pitiful position. And chose to love me anyway. God subjected Himself to death so that we who believe in Him will never die. God subjected Himself to death. Think about that for just a minute. God died for you. Oh, pastor, you can't say that God died. God can't die. He's God. What does it mean to die? Death doesn't mean that we cease to exist. That's not what death means. When God died, He didn't cease to exist. How in the world then could God die? Well, the same way that you and I die. We have to believe. And how did God bleed? He had to become flesh. Did God become flesh? Yes, He did. How? In the incarnation of the Son, when the Holy Son of the Father was born of the virgin's womb. He took on flesh. 
without ceasing to be what He was, He became what He was not. You understand that? Without ceasing to be what He was, He became what He was not. What does that mean? It means that without ceasing to be what He's always been, God, He became what He never was, and that is man. Not just any man. The unrighteous. He became man also that He could make us what He is. The perfection of God. Do you get that? Without ceasing to be what He was, He became what He was not. So He's both. He's God and man in one person, Jesus Christ. He's not more God than more man. He's complete union of God and man all in one person without ceasing to be what He was, could become what He was not, so that He could take what we are not and make us what He is. This is the Gospel. This is what Peter says in Second Peter chapter 1. He makes us partakers of the divine nature. And you say, why on earth did He have to become like us? Because He could heal us. He became man because it was man that needed saving, as, as Irenaeus said. What has not been assumed has not been healed. It's just like if my wife's van is broken, and I call Tommy, and I say, Hey, Tommy, I need you to look at my wife's van. Can you do that? And he says, Yeah. And so I show up in my SUV to Tommy, and then Tommy says, Wait a minute, is this your wife's car? No. Well, I thought your wife's car was broken. Well, it is. How am I going to fix your wife's car? You didn't bring me your wife's car. What has not been assumed has not been healed. This is why Jesus had to become like we were. He became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. He substituted Himself for our sin. He didn't have any sin of His own. He was perfect, spotless. He died a death that should have been ours. He had no reason other than His love for us to die. You see, Jesus didn't deserve death, but He died motivated by one reason. You know what it is? His love. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And that leads us to our fifth and final point this morning. Salvation in Christ is sufficient. Look at the last verses in First Peter Look at those last verses there. See Peter talking about the ark and baptism and all of these things? See him talking about that? What's he, what's he saying? Peter uses baptism here the same way that Paul does in Romans 6. And if you believe in writing in your Bible, which I encourage you to do, you should just write beside that language, Romans 6, and you'll have a better picture. Peter uses the ark and baptism... You know what he's doing? He's pointing to the sufficiency of the cross. And all of these thoughts flow out of verse 18. Look at the last part of verse 18. Made alive in the Spirit. You know what that refers to? That refers to the Spirit bringing Christ back to life. That refers to the Spirit breathing life into the dead body of Jesus, causing He who was dead to experience life again. You know what we call that? Resurrection. Look at verse 21 and 22. Look at those verses. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. He's not talking about water baptism. That's not baptismal regeneration. Look at what he says. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 22. 
who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers, having been subjected to Him. You know what he's saying? He's saying because He has accomplished salvation through His death on the cross, Jesus has secured the hope of our salvation. We now can trust in Christ and Christ alone. Nothing else. Not any righteousness that you can amass. Not how many times you go to church. Not I made a decision one time in the past. Not I am a member of a church. Not my granddaddy went to church. You have to trust in Christ alone for the sufficiency of your salvation. Because only Jesus saves. So do you trust in Christ alone for your salvation? I run into people so many times and I ask them a question. How do you know that you're right with God? You know what they say? Nine out of ten people, they start telling me about how good they are or how they've done this and they've done that. And you know what that does? Anytime you start talking about yourself, you know what you're saying? That kind of reasoning says that the work of Christ on the cross is insufficient. It's not enough. Anytime you say, well, I've done this, I've done that, you're saying what Christ has done is not enough. What is your hope in life and death? Jesus, only Jesus. You have one argument, you have one plea, that Jesus died for you. That's it. That's it. The work that Christ has accomplished on the cross is sufficient. Salvation is of Christ alone. The sure hope of our salvation is one thing. Christ and Him crucified. As we sang earlier, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Sing it with me. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. And I wonder this morning if you can really sing that song and mean it. That you can say that I am not trusting in even my best, but I am wholly trusting in Christ Christ alone. Now listen to me carefully. You may say it right here. God's not interested in you saying it right here. He's interested in you saying it right here. He knows the difference. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, then listen. He has moved heaven and earth to give you Himself. He has moved heaven and earth, even shedding His own blood so that He can make you completely perfect in Him. All you have to do is trust Him. All you have to do is respond to Him. And maybe this morning you're sitting here and you can feel your heart burning within. You know what that is? That's the Holy Spirit telling you, Jesus died for sinners. I am a sinner. Jesus saves sinners. Call Jesus. 
cry out to Him, even where you are right now, in your heart, say, Jesus, save me. And may today, may we all together confess this Gospel together and say, Jesus, only Jesus. Father, we love You. Thank You for giving us salvation in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We pray God will use this message for His glory in your life. If you would like more information, please feel free to contact us at info at OxfordBaptistChurch.com. Oxford Baptist Church is located in Oxford, Georgia. If you're close, we'd love to meet you.